spouses or parents or kids, people all ready to point to our shortcomings. And with depression at record levels, you could argue whether it's safe to keep on stressing that we are unworthy. So is my friend right? Uh, Even today, our prayer book background has us confessing our sins pretty regularly together at church. And I still remember the phrase my friend used. He said it made us sound like worms in the gutter of life. We were prayer book worms. So are humans. In fact, are believers wrong to dwell on our unworthiness before God? That's a question I'll try and address today as we continue looking at Jacob's story. And as we pick up the narrative in Genesis, Jacob is returning home. Tricky Jake has decided to run from Uncle Laban, his manipulative and threatening father-in-law now. And so he's returning home but afraid of a vengeful brother with reason to be angry. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. And when we start in chapter 32 from verse 3, he sends messages to tell his brother, look, I'm not going to be a burden on you. He sent messages ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you're to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban, have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might find favour in his eyes, in your eyes. He's looking for favour. Actually, the word is grace. Uh, from Esau he wants a fresh start with him and here's the response verse 6 when the messenger returned to Jacob they said we went to your brother Esau and now he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him that's not a message of welcome it's actually just silence and 400 men advancing which is intimidating because you don't normally send 400 men in a welcoming party you send 400 men on a military action So verse 7 says Jacob was in great fear and distress. And what does he do in fear? Jacob prays and he plans. And we look at each of those in turn. He prays from verse 9. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make you prosper, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I'd only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he'll come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you've said, I'll surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which can't be counted. Dear friends, we've been many weeks in Jacob, and this is the first prayer recorded of Jacob the entire time. The entire narrative of his life. Before now, he's just been relying on his own cleverness and his own determination and it's about time he prays. But this is a wonderful model for prayer. Two features. Firstly, like I said, he confesses his unworthiness. Verse 10, I am unworthy. Now, for all his faults, Jacob's not been a violent man and he was a very hard worker. He is providing for a large family And he believed God's promise. But you know, in true prayer, there's no room for boasting. No making claims on God because of your personal efforts or merit. None of this Australian, look, I've been a pretty good bloke, you know, God. Not even the defensive excuse, at least I'm not as bad as others. Jacob just knows God has been very kind. 
He'd left home with nothing. He returns with a huge family, the blessing of many descendants that was promised to his grandfather Abraham and he knew he didn't deserve it because he cheated his brother twice, he deceived his father and he's played favourites with his wives. It's a reminder, isn't it, that God's grace comes to sinners. And it's a reminder that believing prayer starts with confession, open and honest confession. Yeah, we are miserable sinners and we can't stop it. While ever we remain in this fallen world, no matter what progress we do make by the help of the Holy Spirit, we still don't cease to sin. No point pretending otherwise, God knows. And that helps explain why so often we begin our services on Sunday with just such an admission. Uh, Our world is as twisted as ever by selfishness and greed, terror and abuse. Responding to the uh, the banking greed scandals and the the child um, internet porn thing with um, Westpac, I think it was this week, the AFP assistant commissioner said, this just struck me, the government could give the police their whole budget. Did you hear that? A whole government's budget. Forget, close down the hospitals, close down the schools. And he said we would still not eradicate, she said we would still not eradicate this one problem. But you could say the same about tax evasion or you know, speeding on the roads or uh, alcohol abuse, let alone the respectable sins that are legal, the grumbling, the anger, the envy, our thanklessness. So I think perhaps the old Book of Common Prayer, 1662, was right when it invited us to say, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness which we most grievously have committed against thy divine majesty provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. Have mercy upon us. And I'm certainly saying Jacob was right to begin his prayer that way. But the second feature of Jacob's prayer is he prays in line with God's word. He asked to be saved from Esau's wrath because of what God promised. Verse 9, you said go home so you could do me good. Verse 12, you promised me descendants as numerous as the sand of the sea. Jacob had inherited God's promise to his father Isaac, grandfather Abraham and so he asked the God of his ancestors for rescue, not because of his worthiness but because of God's faithfulness. He's standing on the promises of God. Now, people sometimes misread the Bible as saying to ask God for whatever you want. Name it and claim it, God is somehow obliged to give us the desires of our hearts. Sounds good. If only we have enough faith, they say. But Jacob is asking for what God has promised to him, what God wants for him. He is praying in line with God's revealed word. John Calvin puts it this way, this is a holy boldness when we familiarly ask of him whatsoever he has promised. But friends, we must not demand what he does not promise. I think 1 John 5 and verse 14 says it well. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We can expect positive answers to prayers asked according to his will. So search the scriptures to know God's will better. So Jacob prays but he also plans. Verse 7 And eight said he divided his family and flocks into two groups. I think the hope was at least one might survive any attack. 
Uh, in verses 13 to 15, he unveiled that next step in the plan, the, um, that long list of animals. Did you uh, add it all up as it was read? Well, I'll tell you, it was a sizable gift. It was over 550 farm animals. And the next verse shows he sends this gift to Esau in five parts with each messenger repeating the gift message. Uh, Summarise verse 20. Be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind him for he thought I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. When I see him perhaps he will receive me. I think perhaps by gifting such, and it was enormous wealth to Esau, Jacob is symbolically attempting to return the blessing he stole from his brother. And certainly when he says in verse 20 he aims to pacify Esau, that is using the language of of sacrifice, of atonement. That's his plan. He wants pacification of wrath. He wants atonement. And so one of the lessons is that reliance on God in prayer does not rule out human activity. Jacob knew the outcome was in God's hands but he does what he can to return in peace because he wants reconciliation with his brother and so he does what he can to help that. He's been in the wrong and it's not just enough to confess. He also wants to set things right so he tries to make restitution. Regarding our prayers friends, We in our society do not want an activism that neglects to pray because we're too busy doing, achieving, strategising and forgetting to rely on grace. But do, neither do we want some kind of irresponsible spirituality. The fatalism is sometimes, oh, let go and let God. Well, as the narrative continues, Jacob begins to move at night. And we come to that very strange episode where Jacob wrestles, famous, the artwork says, wrestles with the angel. But actually, in fact, we find out he wrestles with God. Look at verse 24. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Jacob had sent his family on ahead and now this strange man confronts him, attacks him, In the dark, it's night, his identity is unclear. I don't think this is the pantomime of world championship wrestling. I think this fight went longer than 15 rounds because they rumbled till daybreak. And from verse 25, it seems like Jacob wins the match. When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. It seems like the other man has to disable Jacob with a mysterious touch just to stay in the fight. And even then he has to ask Jacob to stop at daybreak. Now, we're just getting again a picture of how determined Jacob was. In fact, wrestling sort of sums up his character. He is always struggling with others. Well, what do we make of this strange story? With whom is he wrestling? Verse 25 implies the man couldn't win, the other man, but he could instantly zap Jacob's leg. And Jacob knows this indicates superhuman power and that's why he asked the man to bless him. And I think like Jacob 
realised, we come to see remarkably he's been fighting God. He's been struggling with God. What's my evidence for saying this? Well, also look at the other man's testimony, verse 27. The other man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob but Israel because you have struggled with El, with God, and with humans and have overcome. He says Jacob has not just wrestled with man but with God. And this is Jacob's own verdict in verse 30 when he says, I saw God face to face here and yet my life was spared. It seems God has come down in some sort of quasi-human form and that's not the only time it happens in the Old Testament. Just a couple of other episodes, for example, back when Abraham, some of you remember, he entertained the three strange visitors and one of them was even called the Lord, Yahweh, and promised his very elderly and infertile wife, Sarah, she'd have a baby in old age. And some theologians see these mysterious, human-like, angelic appearances of God as a, a precursor, a, a forerunner to the incarnation. The incarnation is our technical term for when God becomes a man. When God's Son came in the flesh, Jesus really put human meat on bones. Christmas celebrates that God came down to our puny fleshly level to communicate with us at our level. And as a man, we know Jesus also limited his use of power. Above all, when they put him on the cross, Jesus restrains himself from calling the angels and smashing his attackers. Why? So we humans can learn to cling to him instead of fighting him. I mean, Jacob wrestles with God and appears to win. You can struggle with God. But I think the situation was like a long arm wrestle back and forth, side to side. I don't know if this makes any sense to you, Brad, but I reckon it's like a dad who lets his son win an arm wrestle. Not because of the boy's strength, but because of the boy's determination. Because God knows he can beat Jacob any time and the zap on the hip shows that. But he's testing Jacob's spirit, his, his desire. And you know, even though Jacob wins and passes, I guess, the determination test, at the very same time, he also submits to God. Verse 26, the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. In weakness of hip, Jacob keeps clinging on to his challenger, asking for blessing. You don't ask that of an inferior Jacob is realising he needs God's blessing more than anything else. And again in verse 30, Jacob realised he was lucky to live because as a sinner you cannot see God in his holiness and expect to live. No, you can only survive by God's mercy. 
and as well as the blessing he receives that new name names are often full of meaning in the bible full of destiny verse 27 he had to kind of own up name his own name to admit that he was yes on jacob which means grasper or deceiver but in exchange for that name god renames him israel literally israel means god struggle And so the shame of his old name is replaced with a new name to live up to and it seems like this whole episode is about God taming Jacob. Jacob realises that in the end he's been pitting his strength not against Esau or Laban but ultimately against God. And God has taken the initiative to humble Jacob's pride, to challenge his self-sufficiency, to redirect, to reorient his determination. But it's fascinating, isn't it, that Jacob's determination has not been removed, but reoriented properly. His strength is now based to clinging to God. Many, many years later, the prophet Hosea says this in chapter 12, verse 3 and 4. sums it up. In the womb, Jacob grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favour. Friends, we only ever triumph by God's grace or favour. And in Jacob's case, that paved the way happily for reconciliation with Esau. That was chapter 33, where in brief, to his great surprise, he is welcomed by Esau with open arms. Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. And that scene just reminded me so much of the famous parable Jesus told of the long-suffering, deserted father waiting for his prodigal son to come home, running to him to welcome him. And here Esau, at least for now, appears as a changed man. And we know that this unexpected welcome given on earth has also been ordained by God's grace to Jacob, somehow smoothing the path, giving him peace where he expected hostility. Jacob had to do business with God before he can resolve the problem with Esau. Get an interesting comment from Jacob, verse 10. If I found favour in your eyes, accept this gift from me to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you've received me favourably. God is in the grace business and Esau, Jacob sees, models the sort of welcome we have from God. No matter how we've deceived or dishonoured God, no matter our unworthiness, because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God welcomes us back with open arms. Jacob certainly admits to Esau that he only stands before him by God's grace. Verse 5, his many children are God's gracious gift. Verse 11, so to his wealth, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me and I have all my need, all I need. Do you believe that same thing? You know that your family, that uh, your wealth, that your 
career, it's not your achievement, but God's gift first and foremost, fundamentally. Having been blessed by God, having discovered that nothing matters more than that, Jacob discovers he's happy to share the blessing which he'd stolen from Esau. I think maybe he's not just now doing it kind of to win Esau's favour, but because a new generosity has changed him. And at any rate, Esau's welcome means Jacob can settle down back at home in peace. He declines Esau's request to stay right with him. It may be a residual reticence to get too involved with Esau who had married differently and I think there is though another reason because if you follow the geography's journey, we don't have time, but verse 18, he finally ends up settling in Shechem which it's said is in verse 18, the land of Canaan. And you may remember Canaan is the name of the promised land. Jacob is now back in the promised land, not alone but this time with his own family and as Israel, we discover the father of the nation to be. Once again, God has kept his promises. All right, we wrap it up. What do you want on your tombstone? Uh, You know, as a minister, sometimes people consult me about what they put on a headstone or on the little... You don't get much space if you get cremated these days, do you? But uh, it was very true in my last parish. We had a cemetery. Um, You know, what do you want after the names and the dates have been recorded? Rest in peace. It's uh, pretty pathetic, isn't it? Uh, Always missed. Well, no, they'll forget about you uh, eventually. I like a great sinner who knew a great saviour. I wouldn't mind that. Here lies Sandy Grant, a great sinner who found in Christ a great saviour. Friends, Christianity is not about being good, is it? Not not in first place. It's about being forgiven. Uh, Amazing grace. Hey, come to the hymn sing on the 160th anniversary. That hymn written by John Newton, you know the story. He was that violent blaspheming slave trader in the corrupt merchant navy, trafficking in humans but wonderfully converted to Christ and became an Anglican minister. And back then ministers didn't really retire, they kind of died on the job, rusted out slowly. Near the end of his life he had, I guess you'd call it these days, Alzheimer's, he was losing his memory, he got forgetful, sometimes he got mixed up and he would forget what he wanted to say in his sermon. And the story goes, there was one thing he never forgot. Newton would get up to preach and would find himself saying, I'm sorry, I'm muddled, I've I've forgotten what I was going to say today. But he was reputed to say, yet this one thing I still know, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great saviour. Let's drill it in, I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is a great saviour. God demonstrates for us, that's what he knew, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates for us his own love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Newton's conversion story was no more instantaneous than Brad's. Uh, It's sometimes portrayed that way, you know, struggling um, in the the violent storm at sea. But no, it actually unfolded over time. Uh, It took him a while to abandon slave trading and though Newton remained a sinner struggling with it all through his earthly life, he had this assurance that he was saved. Not because he'd cleaned up his acts sufficiently but because Christ died to save him when he was sinful, when he was at his worst. 
Tonight in Genesis 32 and 3, it seems Jacob came to a similar point because he just admits his own unworthiness and praises the utter, utter grace of God in giving him, well, anything at all, let alone the enormous blessings he received. In fact, I think it was his sense of unworthiness that made him all the more desperate to grasp God's grace. You know, regardless of what people say about self-esteem, we would do well to be like Jacob, to realise that however well you might be thinking you're going in the struggle, you know, with others in life, you know, the struggle whether to pray and to do good or not, struggle with God, we're all great sinners. But we can thank God that our salvation does not depend on that fact. But on the fact that in Christ we know a great Saviour. Amen.